beautiful day in semi-lockdown. I hope you are staying safe wherever in the world you are, uh, whatever country you're in. I'm sure everyone's going through something crazy right now. Um, but uh, yeah, the last couple of weeks were, were a little nuts. If you didn't catch, uh, there was no episode last week. Um, basically, a little over a week ago, I was here in Thailand. I'm back in Koh Phangan. Uh, very happy to be here of all the places one could be, but a little over a week ago, um, my girlfriend and I decided to end our relationship. We happened to be in different countries at the time, and the virus hadn't gotten that crazy. Like it was, this is only a couple weeks ago. It was big in Italy, obviously China, a couple other places, but um, different parts of the world. We also had uh, six months of travel planned. So um, basically, we were like, we still love each other, we still care about each other, we still want to do this. Let's, let's at least meet in person and do the do Africa, and then part amicably. Um, but then while she was on the way, she was in New York on the way to the airport and it was like 6 a.m. in Thailand, my friend kicks down my bedroom door and says, Britain needs to talk to you. And apparently that, that hour, uh, it, it broke out in Egypt where we were going to go. So the place we we're going to stay was closed down. And um, I mean, they went from like, I think three isolated incidents to like 40 or 80 in one place in Luxor, one of the places we were going to go. Um, so we had to last minute reroute to South Africa. We get to South Africa, uh, this was about a week ago. Everything seemed super peaceful. I just flew like 20 something hours to get there. Within like three or four days, it blew up over there. And uh, as much as we love South Africa, um, it is not the safest place to be in general. Um, so we decided to, even though I just got there, we flew all the way back here, just made it in before they closed the border. So I'm very lucky to be on a beach island in Thailand. I hope you are safe wherever you are. Um, so yeah, <laughs> here we are. I mean, it's not quite uh, locked down here yet, um, but we're preparing for it. We basically have a month of food and all that stuff. So hope you're also adequately prepared. Um, and you know, so this, I mean, I don't love being cooped up either. Uh, I don't, I really don't love that everyone is on their screens more right now because that's kind of the thing that most people do, especially if you're in a small apartment, what, what else is there to do? And I'm trying to find silver linings here because I think it's obviously not great to be on a screen all the time. I'm looking at this as like a cocoon phase, which I think is a good thing to do for your brain periodically anyway. I mean, you're at home, it's a great time to read the books you wanted to read, um, do the yoga program you wanted to do. I mean, can't socialize, but you can do a lot of stuff to stimulate your brain. And I've actually been reading quite a bit these last couple of weeks. So this uh, this Facebook Live, this podcast is going to be a little more complex. I usually don't have uh, notes written this tiny. Uh, on, and uh, on that note, uh, just my last announcements, um, is a great time. I mean, got to plug it. This is a great time to do the archetype class or any sort of uh, program you wanted to do and didn't have time for. Now you have time to do it. I mean, if you're, if you're at home, you can't uh, work, you can't go to school, can't do a lot of things, can't socialize. Uh, it's a great time to educate yourself. And I'm looking at it in my own cocoon Phase. Um, I just ordered a kettlebell. I'm reading all the heavy Jungian psych books that I, I don't always get to or don't don't always make time for. I've been basically reading three hours a day because what else is there to do? I mean, there's Instagram, but there's better things to do than scroll Instagram. Um, so yes, I mean, uh, the archetype class is still available. It's at rwando.com archetype. You can also get a discount on my arousal control course. And I'm reinstating the free coaching session that I discontinued earlier in the year because I want to be there for you. We're all home. We're all thinking. It's a great time to go into your cocoon and recreate yourself and, and uh, that's available there. And the Camino trip that I had planned earlier is probably 
Well, it, it may or may not happen, but I'm not planning for it right now because who knows if we'll be allowed out of the house uh, come that time. All right, so today's topic is on the mother complex. Um, two weeks ago, I did a kind of a preliminary or introductory um, episode on it, and um, it's funny because uh, I, I went deeper into Eric Neumann's book, uh, The Origin and History of Consciousness. Eric Neumann was one of Freud's protégés. He was kind of like, not Freud, sorry, Jung. Um, he was the psychologist that Jung kind of like handed over uh, the lineage of depth psychology to. And um, reading his book, really fascinating ideas. Um, and also, actually, randomly in South Africa, I came across another book that has been on my reading list for like 10 years. It's um, Prometheus Rising by Robert Anton Wilson. Oddly, I, I found out about Robert Anton Wilson back when I was just trying to get over social anxiety and I downloaded a random torrent on hypnosis like audiobooks to like hypnotize yourself into being confident and I uh, had a bunch of his lectures and he was talking about all this crazy stuff that I didn't really understand um, you know uh, like how the brain works and how we model reality and stuff it kind of went over my head but then when I was in South Africa last week I borrowed that book from someone and he actually talks about the same exact things in different language like he doesn't refer to the mother complex he does refer to the more uh, biological aspect of uh, certain parts of our psychic development um, referring to the oro bio survival circuit and I'll, I'll define all this stuff as, as we go through so this can be kind of a complex and abstract uh, subject it's a very deep subject so I'm going to talk about it on three layers um, the first is the individual consciousness side I mean Overcoming the mother complex is, in my opinion, and the, one of the first stages of the internal hero's journey for most men, women perhaps too, but I'm going to point to some ways that I think the hero's journey, the, the way the hero's journey is portrayed in modern media and the way most people talk about it is actually based on a male paradigm. I actually think it's kind of insulting to apply this paradigm to a woman's uh, mind because women have different experiences and different impulses. I'm going to flush that out. Um, but it's, it's a aspect of like I would call the sexualized uh, hero's journey in the sense that there's a there's a different type of development that a masculine psyche goes through as opposed to a feminine psyche, and this mother complex thing, as I mentioned in the last episode, is something that I, I'm seeing uh, is kind of like an I don't know plague an epidemic amongst uh, younger men, millennial men. If you're born after 1980, I think it's really common, unusually common, to have mother complexes, and this is. Independent of like how your mother raised you, it, I mean, certainly it can be exacerbated if you have a domineering mother or a neurotic mother. But um, I actually think it's par partly culturally induced. And the result of this is a lot of guys who have unusual anxiety. I think not only is it uh, from culture, I mean, I think technology is a huge part of it. Uh, I'll get into that as well. But what, how, it, how it affects most men is that a lot of guys grow up and they, they might be physically a grown man. They might be in their 20s, 30s, whatever, but they have the psychology of a child or they still have certain emotional patterns that are more adolescent than adults as opposed to hundreds of years ago, uh, most human males were men by the time they were 18, if not through puberty. Um, it affects how uh, you relate to women. It affects... Uh, your relationship to your own feminine side, your own emotional unconscious. And a lot of things come from that, mental health, self-esteem, creativity. That's the first layer, the individual hero's journey of transformation, which applies to most of us, if not all of us. The second layer is Eric Neumann's thesis. So 
Eric Norman's thesis of his whole book, The um, Origins and History of Consciousness, is that, uh, and this is, this is the idea that I thought was really new, it was new to me to think about it this way, that the evolution of consciousness in humanity, in humans, in homo sapiens, going from basically animal consciousness, just like our primate cousins, to the modern homo sapiens that can think and have an ego and, and can map out time and all that stuff, um, uh, that maps directly to the individual consciousness. So, for instance, our Neolithic ancestors, our pre-Homo sapiens ancestors, basically had the consciousness level of an infant or a child or a or toddler. Um, a young child has the consciousness level of, I don't know, an early Homo sapiens. Uh, an adolescent has the consciousness level of uh, our ancestors 10,000 years ago, and ideally uh, a human today or an adult today has the consciousness of homo sapiens like the, there's a direct correlation there it's interesting because with the mother complex uh someone who has a mother complex in some ways it not maybe not in every area of his life but in some ways is getting trapped in that adolescent phase and as i mentioned that affects relationships it affects all the, the feminine uh, emotional sides of life relationships your creative side your emotional well-being so that is really interesting. And with the sociological stuff, we're going to be referencing uh, certain mythologies that I think are misinterpreted. The Oedipus uh, mythology, um, Osiris, um, and Medusa. Because um, basically what we're talking about is the great mother archetype that exists in all of us to a certain degree. If you are a man who's... If you're a man, uh, the, the mother archetype is something that greatly affects your expression because uh, in, in many psychological theories, your expression is greatly affected by your opposite sex parent, especially if you're heterosexual. We're gonna get to that. And the third layer of all of this, uh, to ground all this abstraction into like real stories, um, not to say that I've completely evolved past my mother complex, but I've certainly got, come a long way if I look at my, my, um, my relationships with women, my uh, relationship to my own creative anima, my, my literal relationship with my mom. A lot of those things have changed drastically for the better and I didn't actually work it out with my mother or necessarily with women, although to a degree, um, if you follow this show at all, if you, if you know anything about me, I was in a matriarchal cult for a couple of years in my mid-20s, which I, relates to the sociological stuff we talk about. But actually in that, in that unusual environment, I got the opportunity to work out this mother complex with, uh, with my cult mentor, who in many ways took the place of um, the maternal archetype, the great mother archetype in both of its forms, the terrible, manipulative, dark, feminine uh, mother archetype, but also the good witch um, archetype that, uh, and I'll share some stories from uh, my cult stuff. Um, if you caught my three-hour double episode of um, my time in the matriarchal cult, I, I basically ran through the broad strokes there. I didn't get to go into every single theme and every single side story because then it would have been like a 20-hour podcast. So I'm going to share some of those stories from there. Um, let's see. Yeah, those are the broad strokes. Um, okay, so let's actually start with uh, the the third thing. Uh, start with the story. So uh, the way the mother complex showed up in me when I was <clears throat> 23, uh, I had lots of anxiety. Um, I was learning, like I was trying to become, I was trying to increase my confidence. So I would study things like typical psychology or dating psychology. I was exposed to the pickup community, all that stuff. Um, but one, one feature of being in the mother complex is that all of my relationships with women, whether or not they ended up positively or negatively, it didn't really matter what the result, what result was. There was a sense of um, 
effort always like connecting with because I was so disconnected from the feminine or I was so in many ways afraid of the feminine aspect of the psyche both in myself and other people it was very like every every um interaction I had with women was had some level of contention and I mean both on like the sexual level but also even with like my own mother with like female friends with and my own emotions right and if you've caught if you've caught my other stories about things you may know I had psychogenic sexual dysfunctions during this time of my life uh, I was very disconnected I was like I, I had terrible affect um, I, I was one of those guys who like would take a group picture and then, and then the photographer would be like dude, why aren't you smiling? And I was like, in my head, I'm like, I'm totally smiling. What are you talking about? But really, I was so disconnected from my emotions, I didn't realize that I wasn't actually smiling. I mean, I was trying to smile, but I wasn't. Anyway, um, so when I entered the, um, the matriarchal cult, um, I was going from our typical patriarchal society, and I'm going to define what that is very specifically in a second, going from that convention into a world run by women. And I, I think, you know... Um, with my book that I'm writing on this time period, everyone wants to focus on the sex cult stuff or the manipulation stuff. I think the most interesting part of that experience was seeing an example of what the world would look like if it was run by women. Like all the, the norms were, were based on feminine principles rather than testosterone-driven principles. But in this setting, um, one of the first things that happened when I jumped into this world was that the woman who had become my cult mom or fill-in for my maternal archetype um, looked me in the eye and she said, I'm going to slowly take away your independence. And you know, I'm like, I'm a 23-year-old kid who's perhaps arrogant, arrogant because of his insecurities. And I, I just laughed her off or whatever. But that's literally what she did over the next year. She slowly took away my independence. Um, and in many ways, this, this, uh, this hits on exactly the themes of today of being sucked in by the mother archetype. And um, to, to, to just connect this to the, the Neumann thesis of how this maps to this whole uh, mythological uh, development. Um, basically, in many of the mythologies, in Greek mythology, Indian mythology, Egyptian mythology, you'll see this type of story where a hero or a proto-hero, someone who's not quite a hero yet, he's usually a young boy, often an orphan in the stories like Harry Potter or something, um, he comes face with the dark, or he becomes faced with what we call the great mother archetype, like the overarching maternal nature, power, feminine aspect of the psyche. And one of two things happen, not, not in the Harry Potter type myths, but in the ancient myths where things get really dark and gruesome. Um, one of two things happen. He confronts the great mother and either, and she challenges him and either he becomes castrated or blinded. Both of them are symbolic of taking away his masculinity or he rises up and usually this is, this is seen in like the Medusa myth where Perseus um, beheads Medusa who Medusa is obviously a, a version of the dark mother like she's uh, an old maternal figure who, who turns men to stone um, he beheads her and through the beheading he connects with Athena who is the good mother and he becomes a hero like a hero in the sense that he becomes an individual man so bring this back to my experience um, I went through different experiences butting heads with these uh, matriarchs in, in, in the cult and in some forms I definitely did get emotionally castrated or emotionally blinded and got sucked into the, the dark feminine and in, in other cases I was able to rise up and create separation and reassimilate in a healthy way. Um, and uh, so like 
a lot of this stuff uh, comes in chapter four of my book. Just for context, I, I don't know if it's interesting or not, but um, in chapter three of my book is like the restoration phase where I really became in touch with my feminine side in a good way. I, for the first time in my life, I started recognizing emotions. I started looking at, um, I started being receptive. I started to learn how to receive whether it came to touch or whether it came to attention or anything like that. Um, and uh, then at a certain point, uh, I started to notice diminishing returns on pleasure. And I think a lot of people experience that when they go from <clears throat> being too hard on the, themselves to being too soft on themselves. And this is chapter three. In chapter four of my book, I started to notice that like, it's not that fun to always receive and consume anymore because I had, I had healed whatever that part of myself needed. I mean, I had uh, validated the feminine side of my psyche for the first time, perhaps. Um, and I started to notice like there's like some itch in me that wanted to like rebel or fight or, or um, achieve serenity. And that's a very adolescent stage. Like if you think of the typical teenage rebellion, it's usually something along those lines where like the kid, you know, up until like maybe 11 years old or 10 years old or 12 or something like that, he's basically under the protection of his mother. Um, emotionally, he is. And around puberty, that's when like most people naturally have the urge, young boys have the urge to like separate and like do their own thing. And if they're faced with any sort of oppression, they want to rebel. Um, and I th and you know, the, the whole point of me speaking about all of this is that I think a lot of modern men are kind of stuck in that um, mental phase. So uh, in, in chapter four of my book, I, that's when I start to notice the diminishing returns. And I start to notice uh, for the first time uh, the differences between a matriarchal and patriarchal structure. So I want to I break those down because um, this is actually very important, both uh, for Neumann's thesis of how society maps to the individual, but also I just think it's interesting. So uh, you may have heard me speak about like the origins of patriarchy in other, in other episodes. I'll run through the biological side and then I'll share what, what I, I came across that's new to me and what I've read recently. <clears throat> and first, must hydrate, gotta stay hydrated, okay. Um, so a lot of on armchair anthropologists like myself um, will look at like agriculture in, in human history as kind of our fall from grace. So in, in the Bible in Genesis, uh, one of the interpretations of Genesis, like you know Adam and Eve leaving the Garden of Eden, is that this is, uh, this is showing uh, when, when man tried to control nature. Whether, you know, the whole thing with the serpent and Eve being the one, I, I think that may have been twisted or, or rewritten later. That's my own, you know, uh, speculation. But uh, it's basically showing how prior to agriculture, humans were just another part of nature. Humans were, uh, the human population would ebb and flow based on the availability of food. Uh, humans may have been conscious, but uh, more conscious than other animals. But they basically, you know, did, they were in, within the rhythm of nature, within the ecosystem. When, when man decided to uh, control nature and develop farm, farming and agriculture, now he was like reining it in. So uh, in, in, uh, in like archetypal uh, symbology, uh, th this is represented by the Ouroboros, which you may have seen before. It's the symbol of the snake eating its tail. It's the idea that everything in nature and, and like our pre-human consciousness is all like, uh, it's all like one thing, uh, never ending like the snake is eating his tail because it's going it's like you're never this is before the human uh humanity have, has developed egos and separation from nature 
And this is kind of like also the status quo in the hero's journey where you're just part of the collective. Like the hero doesn't really exist. Like before Frodo leaves the Shire, he's just another hobbit. Before uh, Luke Skywalker leaves Tatooine, he's just another Tatooine resident. Like there's nothing special about him. He's part of the, he's part of the snake eating his tail. Um, him leaving though uh, is where, uh, sorry, going back to the, the, the anthropological side, uh, when, when humans, uh, one more thing. Uh, during this time, uh, masculine traits or testosterone-driven behaviors and feminine or oxytocin, serotonin-driven behaviors were likely in balance. In fact, uh, many of these uh, pre-agricultural societies seem to have been uh, matriarchal in some sense. Like They certainly honored women and the maternal leadership more than modern society. And, and you know, basically, not, not for moral reasons, but for practical reasons, like, there was a balance, there, in times of scarcity, it's way more useful to be testosterone driven, when you have to fight nature, when you have to defeat a predator, when you have to hunt food, when you have to fight an invading tribe, that's important, but most of the time, and most of uh, our, our pre-agricultural ancestors' experience, they were in, like, oxytocin chill-out mode, they were in their parasympathetic mode, I mean, Unless they were going through a famine or something, like they couldn't uh, access food, uh, most of the time they were chilling. I mean, if you look at uh, a lot of the paleo uh, suggestions when it comes to nutrition or like uh, Marxist's primal blueprint, Marxist and the nutritionist or exercise guy, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the um, fitness and diet uh, suggestions that people have in modern day basically glorifies pre-agricultural existence. People did not sit too long, they did not work too much, they lifted heavy things, they moved around, they socialized, they ate a variety of food. I don't remember exactly, but uh, Mark Sisson has like 10 rules for being a Paleolithic person. Basically, a lot of us glorify pre-agricultural um, human existence and look at uh, agriculture as kind of like this fall from grace. And I, I'm one of them. Like I look at like I, I'm constantly talking about how like we're on screens all the time. We're sitting too much, my, myself included. But like, I, I also like kind of like to romanticize pre-agricultural existence. Obviously, there were terrible things back then. Like you might get eaten any time. If you got an infection, you'd probably die. Like it wasn't it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. But there are certain things that are more natural to our psyche uh, that existed back then. However, uh, the new idea to me was that Neumann uh, suggested, in not so many words, that. Uh, the development of agriculture, the attempt to control nature, and what we would call patriarchy or uh, a society that heavily favors testosterone-driven behavior uh, was kind of inevitable. Um, you know, the ego is seen as like the more masculine side of the psyche, and as humans developed an ego, uh, developed consciousness uh, for survival purposes to try to recognize time and to be able to plan things and to think about what a buffalo might be experiencing, to plan on hunting them. This was... Uh, it was inevitable that uh, they would try to control nature because the masculine or testosterone-driven impulses is trying to control the unknowns. Um, if you think of like archetypes as like programs that have one function, they want to repeat. The testosterone-driven programs are like if there's any threat, we want to control it. If there's any unknowns or anything we don't control, we want to rein it in. So of course, uh, they they domesticated animals. They being humans, domesticated animals, uh, domesticated. Um, life and built cities and all that stuff and as that cycled out uh, generation by generation testosterone driven behavior became more of the um, instead of being a balance it became more of the uh, uh, it became more hyperbolic in terms of like the better strategy right um, so as as generations and generations went on 
uh, and agriculture incentivized people to hoard their wealth rather than share with their, their kinsmen and cities grew really big and people became isolated. Um, more and more became a better strategy to have testosterone driven impulses to be competitive to be cutthroat to be less empathetic to to save your food for your family to build walls around your nuclear home um, as opposed to the pre-agricultural more matriarchal situations that in my opinion and I think many people's opinion is the origin of patriarchy was there misogyny in there too probably but if anything the misogyny was probably a result of these uh, natural uh, economic forces where Yes, if it's a male-driven world, um, it's going to be more challenging for someone who doesn't have a male brain, and it's easier to judge someone in, in those ways. And on top of that, um, bring us back to the mythological side of things, one of the arguments that Jung and Neumann make is that the whole mother complex thing is basically a fear of the feminine of the male ego, or, or fear of the feminine of the human ego, let's say. And uh, the feminine referring to oxytocin-driven impulses, um, but also the emotional unconscious, uh, and in and, and women in general. So anybody who has like social anxiety around women has some version of a mother complex likely, or anyone who's afraid of their feelings is another example. Um, all right, so back, back, to, back to the story of when I was in the matriarchal cult. I enter this uh, world where women run the show, and not only do women run the show, um, more feminine values are, are, uh, are the norm. So like, it's very taboo in this society to be competitive or to do anything that would be typical bro behavior. Instead, the norms are deep emotional communication, being there for each other. Like um, Rick and Morty had a had us like a, in, a, in one of in the Gazorp Gazorp. If you watch Rick and Morty, there's an episode where they go to the to go to a planet run by women, basically called Gazorp Gazorp, where they basically domesticated men to breed only, and then they in they, uh, they they make a lot of jokes, obviously, but um, the, the the common um, greeting there is "I'm here if you need to talk." Like that's the world run by women, right? It wasn't that extreme, obviously. It's a comic comic situation, but um, as I went through this uh, very important restorative phase. Um, and then I started to develop, it's kind of like I, I reverted back to toddler nature where I was just like being receptive and being nurtured by this very feminine and nurturing environment. At a certain point, which is marked by chapter four of my book, I was like, all right, this is a little too much. And I started to notice that um, in this world, as one would kind of expect, men were kind of second class citizens, not in a terrible way, but in an interesting way, because um, there's only one um, modern-ish matriarchal um, society that is has been noted. Um, that's the Moguo tribe in in China, or Moguo people in China. It was um, documented in Chris Ryan's um, Sex of Dawn. And basically, what what happens in this? Uh, I, I think I don't think they exist anymore, but they existed until the 1800s, I believe. Um, in that society, women uh, control everything. Uh, women, uh, property is passed down through women. Every um, every household is head by a matriarch, and then her daughters live in all the rooms. And in that society, men are not allowed to own property or even live in the house. They have to sleep in the courtyard. The only way that a man in that matriarchal society can have any sort of shelter is that they have to be taken in by the daughters of another um, another family. So basically, in this world, women run everything. Women are in charge of everything, and men have one one purpose, which is to do manual labor and to have sex. Not the worst thing either, but one thing that's interesting uh, there and also in what I noticed in, in One Taste in the matriarchal cult that I was in, um, this kind of society makes men docile. Like in a patriarchal society, one of, the, one of the aspects of it is that 
the, the, the male impetus is to control the unknown. So part of that is controlling sexuality because sex creates chaos, controlling women, oppressing women. All those things have, hap all those things have happened in our conventional society. Um, but then by doing that, by controlling sex, controlling women and oppressing women, sex now, but female sex becomes a scarce resource. So obviously in a marketplace, if something is a scarce resource, people are now uh, going to compete for that and do crazy things to like achieve that. And we can argue that the reason why we have skyscrapers and cell phones and all these sorts of achievements is that guys were trying to get laid. Might be a bit uh, hyperbolic to say that, but I think, you know, progress, uh, a lot of our impulses are to procreate, right? So um, in, the, in the matriarchy, however, I noticed that uh, this, it, it flipped the power dynamics. So women were no longer oppressed. Women were very free to express their sexuality. And what was interesting and ironic is that it flipped the, um, the supply and demand in the sexual marketplace. So suddenly male sexuality in this matriarchy became more... Uh, uh, more valuable, and most men in this in this place, they no longer were seeing female sexuality as a scarce resource because it's always like kind of being offered. Um, so, in one way, in some an ironic way, it kind of empowered men in a, in a way. But also, as far as behavior went, it made men really docile. And it was I myself like I had gone through this period of chapter three restoration where I was like feeling really. Uh, nurtured and good and like I went back into toddler mode and then chapter four is kind of like the resurgence of my ego is like wait a minute I don't always want to be I don't want to always be uh, uh, metaphorically on my back um, and I started to notice how like I was losing a lot of what I would call masculine virtues um, in this like I was kind of losing my edge I was becoming very soft I if you've seen photos of me from back then I, I grew my hair out long I was like I'm kind of becoming a woman like this is uh, I mean it's great to touch uh, get in touch with my feminine side but this is getting a little too extreme um, and uh, so so I basically decided this is when I was gonna start a men's group and if you are in my if you're in the masculine underground Facebook group I've posted about this, you know, any, I always recommend this to any guy who wants to become a coach, especially for men, start a men's group, make it free, make it inexpensive, and just like get into the habit of like holding space for guys as they work through their shit, because that, that, that was my education of becoming a coach. Like I spent many, many hours doing that, gave certain competences and, and, and knowledge in that, in that regard. Um, but, but uh, it was interesting is that, uh, my cult mom, she, she took on the role, she went from being the good mother who was very nurturing to taking on the role of being the oppressive mother or Medusa, where she now, she did not want me to develop this group because it was kind of a, initially it was a threat uh, to their ideas. They didn't, they didn't want a bunch of men to, to get together and like maybe talk about how they didn't like how things went. And this is actually uh, discussed directly in Neumann's book about how men who are battling their internal mother complexes have this urge to get together and this is why you see fraternities in college uh gangs in in uh amongst teenage boys it's like they're realizing like hey like we don't want to be under our mother's or we don't want to be under the under our mother's thumb our whole lives like, like let's get together so we can like be strong enough to battle it so this was like where we butt heads and um and uh basically my cult mom dominated me in different ways uh and uh Hold on, I just want to make sure I didn't jump. I, I'm talking on three levels, so I just want to make sure I didn't jump uh, through anything. Okay, yeah. So I ended up butting heads with her, and uh, in, in different ways, like she basically emotionally castrated me. In, 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 and this is the the um, thing that gets seen in mythology. So we'll talk about one of the myths that I think are important, the Isis Os Osiris myth. Um, 
Oh, okay. Uh, one more thing with this. Uh, so, actually, one of the roots of misogyny is that, uh, and one of the arguments of Jung and Neumann is that uh, most men have an inherent fear because, especially through our, our, our um, development as toddlers, women or the feminine have a monopoly over certain things we need. Um, when we're an infant, our mother is a source of breast milk, like uh, the oral circuit uh, that Freud and Robert Anton Wilson and uh, refer to is like that's like our main mo is like we want to drink from the teat like that's the only way we could survive later on uh, the maternal side of our upbringing whether it's our literal mom or other women that give us that nurturing our source of um, of nurturing of, of emotional support and then later on as we become post-pubescent and become interested uh, sexually in women women then become a monopoly of sexuality this idea that some other party has control over your fate because they monopolize these resources you want creates fear, creates resentment, and as Yoda says, fear turns to anger, anger turns to the hate. That to me is like the root of, I mean, any any sort of class level hatred, like racism or, or anything, uh, there's some fear that that other group has some sort of power over you. So uh, that's why the masculine impulse was to control anything of the feminine side of existence. So controlling nature was an obvious thing because mother nature, you know, the, the feminine term is in that mother nature would uh, spoil many of uh, human intentions, um, conquering women because w women and sexuality kind of put men in this chaotic state. Um, and then, you know, this is why uh, basically one, one attempt of men to become immune to the control of women is to avoid them. So in modern day, we see this as MGTOW. These guys are like, oh, we don't need women because basically we're afraid of them. And in uh, back in the day, in many religions, uh, you would see this in the ascetic paths where clergy, for instance, would choose to be celibate. Why? Because if they are swearing that off, they never have to worry about the unknown chaos of being turned on or attracted to anything. <clears throat> All right, so uh, return to childhood. Let's see, Sarah, uh, battle movers. Okay, and yeah, and then one of... Um, yeah, so... so you know, last uh, last episode, I spoke about the manic pixie dream girl as a, kind of a one-dimensional archetype. Really, most archetypes are one-dimensional. I just want to reference that because, like, if you think of like the masculine archetype and some of the negatives it's created in society, that's like, if you think of it as a program and its, it's one function is to overcome unknowns, that's kind of what spiraled out of control and became oppression of nature and women and the unconscious. Uh, but I was also just trying to reference that this by itself wasn't misogynistic. It's just the it's just the function of of a single of one one dimensional uh, characters. Like even in the Lion King, Timon and Pumbaa were basically one dimensional characters. They had a specific function to teach uh, Simba Hakuna Matata. Rafiki was a one dimensional character in a sense that he was just an old man. The manic pixie dream girl is also a one dimensional character. In some ways, uh, these patriarchal impulses also one dimensional in that they are programs. They are not fully developed characters. Um, okay, so one of the one of the reasons why, uh, or one of the explanations for for Neumann's thesis that uh, men 
have this fear of women and this desire to control the unknown is that uh, the ego is the masculine side of the consciousness. So this is, uh, this is something you see across many different spiritual uh, um, traditions. If you have read anything by Carlos Castaneda, who is this Toltec uh, mystic, he's written a bunch of books that you may have seen in bookstores. Um, he speaks about this in his books that uh, this is mystical language, of course, but most of the universe is feminine energy, like masculine energy is kind of a newer um, a newer thing on the scene. Um, and, and we can see this, perhaps this is a metaphor or maybe literal in that um, if you look at asexual creatures, asexuals, even single-celled organisms, and, and their later um, descendants who are sexual or organisms, the female sexual organism and the asexual organism are very similar and almost identical, whereas the male version is kind of this new type, right? Like if you, if you think of like humans, we have the or many, many uh, animals. We have the, the XY chromosome. If you know any, not that I, you know, I'm an armchair biologist as well, but the Y chromosome is a, it's a incomplete, whereas XX is what females have. Anyway, the point is that maleness is the newer thing in terms of um, being on the scene biologically, but also psychically, the ego is seen as like the masculine side of the, the, the consciousness. Prior to the development of ego, prior to the separation from nature, uh, when we're back in the Ouroboros, the snake eating its tail, that's basically like being just part of nature and like being part of the feminine. So a lot of the symbology of the great mother is, is uh, you're basically fight like human consciousness is basically fighting against um, mother nature, the great unconscious, which is again, why uh, patriarchal impulses were to control women, control the unconscious and control nature. Um, all right. So I want to bring this back to, uh, the individual experience because this is a part of the hero's journey that I, I see a lot of guys get stuck on and I, I, might, I might sound a little judgmental but I, this is the truth and this is what I would say to a client or anybody who spoke to me one-on-one -on -one, is you see a lot of guys especially again millennial dudes or I, actually I don't want to just call out my generation I think this is true for many people where uh, they will be really drawn to the hero's journey in fiction. Like, I think there's a reason why Marvel movies are so ridiculously popular right now, even though they all follow exactly the same structure to the point of, I mean, there's a reason why we get so turned on or, or uh, interested by these hero journeys, hero's journey stories, because I think most people, and this is true throughout history, most people don't leave the status quo, they don't do the thing they want, and um, here's the judgmental thing that I'll say to you if you're watching this, if there is something that you feel like this urge in your soul to do, whether it's physically do with your body or travel or, or talk to someone you, or say the truth that you want to say or express, whatever the thing is that you want to do, if you're not doing it, then you're denying your own hero's journey and you're denying your opportunity to become a hero. Because what a hero is psychologically is, and Neumann says this uh, in, in throughout the book, and it's the idea of the hero. A hero is a creative individual who leaves the status quo. If you recall the hero's journey, the, the call to adventure is where he leaves uh, the normal, normal reality. So if you are stuck in normal reality, whether physically you're not going to leave your hometown or leave your group of friends or leave like, your, your, your uh, safe uh, job, and, and enter the unknowns, then you are not letting yourself become an individual creative hero. You're just going to be part of the collective or part of the Uruburos who has, like, when you're inside, you have no discrete identity. Um, and the whole, again, with, with men, especially younger men, I think uh, this attachment to mother or the mother archetype is uh, where a lot of guys get stuck. So, uh, and, you know, the effect of this is creative impotence, some maybe literal impotence. I think my psychogenic sexual dysfunctions stem from this as well, um, but also um, finding ease with women because 
uh, just to reference my experience for a second, um, the big difference that happened, the, the way that I knew something had changed in me was not necessarily that there were, that my dating life changed outwardly. It, it did a little bit, but it was more like when I interacted with women or interacted with anything of the feminine aspect of life, I no longer felt this contention or, or uh, uh, level of effort. Like things became easeful because now I can connect as a peer. Because the whole idea behind uh, a lot of these mythologies, I'm going I'm to break down the Isis with I Osiris myth in a second. It's like the, the, the proto-hero, he's not quite a hero yet, he comes to confront the mother, usually in the form, and the, the mother usually will turn into the terrible mother because that uh, maternal archetype is basically like a psychological shit test. It's like she is challenging the proto-hero to see if he can rise up to be her peer. And, um, and if he fails... Uh, she emotionally castrates him, or in a lot of the myths, the proto-hero literally gets his balls chopped off and he goes back into forever being a child. Um, or he rises up, he challenges the mother, often like in, in Perseus and Medusa, he literally cuts off the head of the mother and the terrible mother is replaced by the good mother who now can see him as a peer and Athena bestows powers on Perseus because Athena is the good mother who loves him. Um, and I think this happens a lot with, with guys and I, you know, guys I coach and I, I say for myself, like, it's not that you have to fight your literal mom in order to be a guy, but if you are being oppressed by your mother or any, any maternal archetype in other people, I mean, for me, it was my cult mentor who took that, who took that role, not my literal mom. Uh, when you challenge her, it's very, she's not going to like, it's not like you have to literally kill her. It's that you have to be willing to disappoint her and disappoint her expectations to her so that part of her that domineers over you or is enmeshing or is uh, like getting or being the overbearing neurotic mom that part of her that archetype within her has to die whether it's your literal mom or, or someone else that part of her has to die so that she can relate to you as a peer which is why in um, mythology you see so much incest we're going to get into that because for a long time I was like why is, why, why is it that in Greek mythology and Egyptian mythology people are always sleeping with their parents and brothers and sisters are getting together like what is this like wh was this something that people did back then probably not There's, I'm going to get into that now so the myth of Isis and Osiris it's Egyptian myth but first I'm going to catch my breath and take a sip of water <clears throat> alright so the Egyptian myth of Isis Osiris. Um, Isis Osiris, Set, and Nephthys were two gods and two goddesses. They're all siblings. They're in the womb together. So they were quadruplets. They, when they were born, they, they paired off into brother-sister-wife pairings. Isis and Osiris uh, got together, and uh, Set and Nephthys got together. And, and basically, symbolically, this is supposed to be the union of... of uh, light masculine feminine and the union of dark fat masculine feminine if you know the story or if you don't know the story i'm going to tell you uh, set who's like the dark masculine in this form uh kills uh osiris who's the light masculine he's dead his light feminine uh wife isis mourns over him uh here's one of the weird things in the story she takes his dismembered penis and impregnates herself and creates horus who is uh the sun god um, and then throughout this time, Isis is, uh, there's like a, a side stories where Isis is lobbying to the Egyptian pantheon for, for Horus to be seen as a god. It's like uh, she's being the, in a sense, the overbearing mother of like, she's not letting him grow up. She's like lobbying to the gods for him. He's stuck in child mode. At some point he does grow up and then he uh, wants to avenge his father. He wants to avenge Osiris. So he challenges uh, Set, who is not only his father's killer, but is also his uncle, also his mother's sister, and his 
father, or sorry, his mother's brother and his father's brother, because it's all mixed up, right? Um, and uh, he goes on to fight. Uh, he challenges Set to to a fight. In that battle between her son and her brother, uh, Isis, the light feminine, actually has a change of heart. So she's the mother figure, right? She's the great mother here. She has a change of heart, and she actually feels bad. She actually sides with her brother in a, in a strange turn of events. She sides with her brother, and uh, not only does Horus, the son, now have to kill his uncle, he actually beheads his own mother because she sided with his uncle. All of this is symbolic, right? We'll, we'll get into it in a second. Um, and... Uh, so Horus beheads her, but she doesn't die because she's a goddess, of course. He chops off her head and is replaced with a cow's head, and then she becomes the good mother. According to Neumann, the cow represents nourishment because we, we get milk from cows. Um, and basically by killing the, the evil mother, she becomes the good mother. The uh, reason why there's so much uh, incest in mythology, in my opinion, but I think this is the opinion of many others as well, is that, of course, these are archetypes, right? They're not meant to represent actual characters, but we're characterizing them. So like for instance, um, we'll get into Oedipus in a second. There's, there's experiences where, according to Neumann, the, the, the mother archetype and many archetypes are transpersonal, um, meaning that they're not actually, like the mother archetype doesn't necessarily, um, isn't necessarily represented by your mom. Although when you're trying to characterize the mother archetype, of course you're going to think of a woman. If you had to have, if you're going to have a dream that represented the maternal archetype of nature, it would make sense that it would be represented in a dream by your literal mom or your grandma or your female boss or someone who takes that role. Um, so in in mythology or dreams, uh, the idea is the son, in order to grow up, has to relate to the feminine in a different way. This, this feminine mother, let's say, in this myth is represented by Isis, a single character. He grows up, and really what he's doing is now, um, instead of relating to the, to, the, to the feminine as a son, so mother-son, he's relating to the feminine as a lover, so they're peers, but in the mythologies, it's still represented by the same character because in the male psyche or the human psyche, this maternal archetype or this feminine archetype is, represent, is like a transpersonal thing. It's not one person, right? Um, so which is why you often see in mythologies sons going on to sleep with their mothers. It's really like a, uh, a boy learning to become a man and, and relate to the feminine as a peer. You see this in, in dating with guys with mother complexes where they, um, we call the Madonna whore complex. Like they're still attached to their mom. So when they go out and connect with um, women, it's hard for them to see them uh, both as like this beautiful mother goddess and someone sexual. So he, uh, a guy with a mother complex will typically have many um, meaningless sexual relations because he's still in love with his mom. He's still attached to his mom. So he can't, he can't switch over and relate to a good woman as a peer. He can only relate to her as a whore because he's still hung up on his mom. Jung goes into this of like women who are enmeshing, like mothers who are enmeshing because they fear the masculine themselves will often subconsciously encourage this. And when you see, you see this actually, uh, this is a bit of a jump, but you see this um, in, uh, in, in, in the movies a lot where you see a guy who's clearly got an issue with the feminine. Uh, you saw this in the Joker movie with um, Joaquin Phoenix. There's an old movie uh, called White Heat with James Cagney where he's basically a cutthroat killer like um but he's like madly in love with his mother like he's he's like one of the he's like an al capone even better than al capone like super cutthroat gangster i think the movie's from the 40s or something and uh but he's like madly in love with his aging mother he kills all these people he sleeps with all these women um but the whole time he's like kind of hung up on his mom you see this in the joker movie too like he basically it's basically a movie on the development of a serial killer 
very obsessed with his mother because he can't relate to the feminine outside of being a child. And uh, so uh, actually, this is important. Uh, Neumann wrote about this, uh, wrote about this, he wrote this book, I think in the 40s as well. I think the book came out in 1949. He was talking about how men who have um, mother complexes are very driven to suicide. So uh, in the... Um, in, in the mythologies, a lot of times, as I mentioned with the castration stuff, the proto-hero will go on to challenge the Great Mother, and if he fails, he gets his nuts chopped off. Um, and uh, Neumann was kind of predicting like a, a male suicide epidemic back in the 40s of like guys who had mother complexes, like they just can never, never access their own individuality, so they're prone to suicide, they're prone to depression, they're prone to grandiose ideas, and then um, uh, depression again in a lot of uh, men with mother complexes go on to kill themselves to become like hopeless romantics or violent romantics that kill themselves. Uh, the way Neumann describes this experience, obviously there's a male suicide, uh, I don't know if I call it an epidemic or, or upward trend, unfortunate upward trend in modern society. I don't. Th uh, the way that Neumann describes that experience in the book back in the 40s is a very, it very much matches a lot of the, the male's uh, suicide killers that we see in the school shootings of modern days. Obviously, he didn't predict that, but he did basically predict that kind of experience amongst um, disenfranchised young men who are still stuck in some level of adolescence. Um, yeah, okay. So well, one, uh, I'm going to go into the uh, Oedipus complex. This might be our last uh, idea before I go into practical applications of this, if you recognize that you have some level of a mother complex. Norman makes a distinction between um, uh, lower masculinity and higher masculinity. And I, I, this, this uh, matches up with Robert Anton Wilson and Freud's uh, two different developmental circuits. So like when we're an infant, we're in that oral biosurvival circuit. Like the most important thing is getting nourishment from our mother's breast. And we're like basically uh, unarmored in Reich terms, like our bodies are soft, our minds are soft, and we're very much kind of an extension of our mother's body. The next level, which you see in the terrible twos in, uh, in young children, is that they develop the anal emotional territorial circuit, um, which is, you know, as any person with children, if you've ever seen two-year-olds, like they start to say no, they start to develop their individuality. And this is uh, more mapped to the paternal or, or masculine side of the psyche, where they're now seeing the world as like, they're, trying to, they're, they're recognizing danger in the world, and they're seeing how they can deal with it directly. So people who, I'm not going to talk, this is a, maybe a subject of the next episode, but this is, this is where the father complexes come in, where, the, where someone feels like they're always, it's like always them against the world, as opposed to someone uh, with a mother complex, where it's like mommy and me against the world, or mommy's going to come in and protect me, which is the underlying assumption. Um, so, all right, so lower and higher masculinity. The lower masculinity is that oral biosurvival circuit where you're, you're an infant attached to mom. The higher masculinity is where you develop your, uh, your individua individu individuality and really the development of ego, um, where you're starting to see yourself as separate, um, and that maps to uh, paternal things. And um, in the mythologies, he says that lower masculinity is associated with sexuality. So, like, when the proto-hero attempts to de uh, develop his individuation but fails, he gets castrated. Um, he becomes impotent. Um, someone who feels, uh, who maybe, I mean, I think this might be the root of many psychogenic sexual dysfunctions because I think, according to ads I see on Facebook, one in five millennials um, have some sort of psychogenic sexual issue. This is, I think, a disconnection from that lower masculinity, that earthy level where they came up against the great mother within their mind um, and they failed. So now they're 
they're psych psychically in impotent. Um, the higher masculinity in mythology, which higher masculinity is, uh, which is more uh, associated with like the intellect and the ego and and uh, seeing the world in terms of semantics and and time, um, that's that's represented in um, mythology by sight. So here we're going to talk about the Oedipus complex, another one of these incestual. Uh, myths that I think are get misunderstood. So um, let me just make sure I didn't miss anything from that last bit. Um, yeah, so like uh, the oral biosurvival circuit is when you're still attached to the Ouroboros, the snake eating its tail. You're not separate. You're you're, and if you look at you know if you look at the brain, that's where we're still being run by the limbic system, the emotional brain. So we haven't really noted separation yet. Whereas when you move on to the emotional territorial circuit. Um, the development of masculinity, you've overcome the first, uh, the first challenge from the great mother, you're not castrated, you go into that uh, next level of emotional um, territorial. Um, this is one thing on the suicide thing, Neumann uh, said that in a lot of the cults, a lot of the matriarchal cults of antiquities, like ancient, like the time of the ancient Egyptian empire, let's say, um, there were a lot of uh, matriarchal cults that, like I say, worshipped um, some sort of goddess, um, and a lot of them were like or orgies and stuff were, were common in these types of they're kind of like the Dionysian cults where like uh, instead of controlling sexuality or controlling the unknown they like were diving into the unknown they're diving into mass hysteria and within that mass hysteria if, if, a, if a male individual if a man didn't uh, develop his serenity it was kind of like him throwing himself against the challenge of the of the great mother um, he would say like a lot of these guys would end up killing themselves as part of like there were actually mass suicides in some of these cults of guys who perhaps got uh, lost in the sauce of the, the feminine. So, on a much lighter note, if you look at modern times of a, uh, you'll see this in younger guys a lot um, where this is actually the whole thing behind the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. He starts to relate with like the extreme feminine. A Manic Pixie Dream Girl is a one-dimensional character that represents in many ways the dark feminine, also the light feminine, kind of extreme emotionality. Um, if he gets lost, he, he gets driven mad, he gets lost in the sauce, he maybe ends up killing himself. Not not in a in a dating situation, but in um you'll see this in a guy who's like basically gone mad. Like he's uh uh, in the pickup world, they call this one-itis. Like he become like he's become head over heels for someone who's so not good for him because he could not uh, stay grounded in the um, in response to the feminine. So she basically took her took his balls in in metaphoric terms. Uh, oh, one more thing on on the the lower masculinity side. Um, I've heard this a lot in, in many different places. In Neumann and Young. Uh, Violent fantasies are a thing. So, like, this is actually what ties, I think, the the suicide and the hysteria trends with uh, what they didn't, um, what Jung and Neumann didn't foresee, which is uh, the mass shootings we have in in the Western world these days. Um, which is uh, violent fantasies are an attempt of the unconscious to separate from the mother complex. They're an unconscious attempt, right? So. The, the young man who's feeling oppressed by the feminine or maybe literally oppressed by his mother is uh, doesn't know what to do, uh, doesn't know how to, to create his own separation. So unconsciously he starts to think about violent things or unconsciously he goes deep into his head. Why? Because violence is one area of the human experience that, th that the feminine doesn't go, right? Violence is very much a testosterone-driven thing. So when you see guys who are... Um, basically like impotent in their lives or creatively impotent or maybe literally impotent um, very often they'll think you know I, I mean we'll, we have this in, in some of our um, colloquialisms like a guy who's constantly on edge or constantly trying to fight people will accuse him of having a little dick or will accuse him of having um, sort of insecurity around his masculinity he's trying to prove it all the time he gets the big sports car to prove it 
uh, not to say that that's always the case, but like um, these like these uh, hyperbolic uh, shows of masculinity are usually an attempt, or these hyperbolic fantasies like killing a bad guy or starting a fight club or or to the extreme of like some sort of mass shooting atrocity. I don't want to oversimplify it, but you know, it's it's a way. It's it's one. Uh, it's evidence of a mother complex. Let's put it that way. So so guys, I've seen this in a lot of guys I coach, like guys who are feeling like they're not develop, they're not acting as a hero in their own lives. They'll fantasize about being an MMA fighter. They'll fantasize about being in a store and a guy breaks in and they save the day by punching him in the face. Like these are these are normal boyhood fantasies when you're trying to assert your masculinity. I would say to you, if you're for anyone who is constantly like fantasizing about violence, chances are this is your unconscious trying to fight against your mother complex. Doesn't mean you need to actually get into a fight, although you might want an outlet in jujitsu or something like that. Okay, higher masculinity, uh, Oedipus this is going to be the last thing before we go into practical tips and close the show here. So the Oedipus myth. What most people know about Oedipus is that um, he uh, tries to he, he kills his father and marries his mother. Another one of these. Uh, these things, and I, I, you know, another one of these insexual examples in mythology that you're like, wait, what's the deal with that? Um, but as, as I mentioned, they're all representative of, uh, of these transpersonal elements. So there's actually more to the Oedipus myth that I actually forgot until I reread it just uh, recently. Um, so Oedipus, um, he's born to a king and queen. Uh, the king hears from a soothsayer, your son is going to grow up to kill you, so you got to get rid of him. He has someone uh, kill his son, but the I think it was like a shepherd or, or so, somebody. So, uh, he didn't have the heart to kill the baby, so instead he nailed the baby's feet to a rock and like was like, okay, nature will take care of them. Maybe the symbol, symbolism in Mother Nature not killing Oedipus, but whatever. Um, some shepherd uh, saves him, the boy grows up, and uh, he's called Oedipus because he has like a broken foot because his feet were nailed to the rock when he was a child. Um, Oedipus grows up uh, to fight the Sphinx. I actually forgot that the Sphinx tail and Oedipus were one. The Sphinx being um, a female lion with a woman's head, a lion's body with a woman's head. And uh, the Sphinx gives him a riddle before uh, he battles the Sphinx, which is what is um, what animal walks on four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, and three legs at night? The answer was man. And I remember hearing this as a child, and I'm like, that's the lamest friggin' riddle. Like, oh yeah, I mean, we walk as a baby, and then we walk on two legs, and we walk with a cane. Like, it's not a very clever riddle. But actually, you know, point of looking at all this, all the symbolism, it actually is like trying to explain, uh, it's trying to show the development of male consciousness again. So he, he, he passes the riddle, he kills the Sphinx. By killing the Sphinx, he becomes uh, the hero. Like, he's overcome... Uh, uh, the the lower masculinity challenge like he's not castrated he's he's virile he's able to fight the physical demon through his brute strength of uh, of being a man and stuff and then he goes on to come across his own father who he doesn't doesn't know is his father on the road they get into a squabble um, he kills his own father not knowing it's his father goes on to the city where his mother is now a widow doesn't know it's his mother marries his mother. Uh, consummates uh, the marriage with his mother, then later finds out that he just killed his father and married his mother. So what does he do with his shame? He blinds himself because vision is the representative in in most mythologies of that higher masculinity and intellect. Um, I, I'm trying to connect this to another thing. A lot of human experience and and uh, our disconnection from nature. 
a lot of people say this is not an original idea of mine. Our disconnection from nature comes from that as humans, we, we overuse two abilities that we have that, that other animals have, but we overuse, we use them to an extreme, which is our sight and our opposable thumbs. Like the, the you know, um, dolphins are, are supposedly as smart as human beings, but um, they don't overuse their sight and opposable thumbs. If you look at the way the world we created is very sight based. So this is an example of like, Perhaps a patriarchal or male-dominated development of society where we're overusing sight. So that's one of the connections between vision and this like so-called higher masculinity. Oedipus, uh, basically, again, even though he overcame the first, the lower masculinity challenge, he fails at the higher masculinity challenge through his shame. Uh, you know, is self-imposed, but this is perhaps you can say coming from the terrible mother, gouges out his own eyes and becomes blind. Um, and uh, one thing here again with the the, the incest thing, because uh, like uh, one of uh, one of Freud's or sorry one of Jung's disagreements with Freud is the whole thing um, of the Oedipus complex of like every boy wants to secretly um, sleep with their mother. Uh, according to Jung, like uh, a lot of the Jungian psychologists make fun of Freud of like seeing this uh, myth is too literal or seeing these impulses is too literal. I mean, if you have a dream of, of having sex with your mom, it doesn't mean you actually want to do that. It could be representative of this kind of thing where you're trying to become peers to the feminine as opposed to being a child to the feminine. It just so happens that to your unconscious, and we see this in mythology, they don't always switch out the characters, right? Like uh, the feminine might be represented by your mother, and as you develop into uh, a man who can be a father, your unconscious might still show it as your mother because that's, that's, the, that's the placeholder it's happened to use. And you see this uh, in many myths of the son, father, son thing where a son, and you see this even in the Horus, Isis, uh, Osiris myth, um, the son grows up to have sex with his mother and, and she has a child which is himself. Doesn't make sense on a literal level, but if you look at the metaphors, it's like it's like you're recreating. You're no longer becoming a child. You're becoming a peer, uh, and interacting with the feminine sexually rather than as a child, because you're becoming a man. So, like, I, I mean, I don't have children, obviously, but um, one of the uh, one of the um, I guess symptoms or, or tells of a guy who's in a mother complex is that uh, he wants to keep behaving as a child, um, and like. Not to say that people should have children or anything like that, but like a, a grown man who is unable to take responsibility for another being, in my opinion, is not fully formed. It's not to say that you need to you know, have a family or, or lead a team or have children or be in charge of anything, but this is actually a, a primary function to go back all the way to the beginning to the anthropological stuff of why we have sexual dimorphism, why there are testosterone-driven traits and physical features and behaviors versus oxytocin-driven uh, traits, there is a function, there are various functions of the masculine archetype, various functions of masculinity. It's not just lifting heavy objects, it's not just fighting and competing, it's also uh, the vision and being the head of something. And, and, and not to say, being the head not necessarily of like telling people what to do, it's about having the vision for the group and taking responsibility for the group. Um, one of, I think, the, uh, the terrible uh, byproducts of a patriarchal culture is that people overvalue leadership and to the point where they think, or not, I shouldn't say that like that. People think that being a leader is always better than being a follower. 
Um, in a matriarchal society, you wouldn't see that. And actually, I only have one example, or two examples, the Mogo tribe and Sex at Dawn, and then my own matriarchal cult experience. Most people actually don't want to be leaders. It, like, it's a lot of responsibility to leaders, a lot of work to be a leader. It's actually a lot easier and a lot more fun in many ways to entrust your well-being to someone else, to a, a parental figure or a leader of your team or a leader of your group or a leader of your nation this is why we have presidents and prime ministers. It's a lot uh, easier on the mind to not have to take responsibility for everything. Instead, uh, entrust the big decision to someone else and to just uh, take, take care of like a smaller piece. Like that's kind of a gift of the masculine or the father nature. So on a developmental level, whether you choose to have children or lead a team or not, if you're not, in a, if you're not striving at least or in a place where you are able to take responsibility for something beyond yourself, I think you're doing yourself a disservice, but also doing society and anyone you relate to a disservice. Like I would see this a lot in, um, I mean, I think the mother complex is rampant in the pickup community. A lot of guys who I you know, entered this whole uh, exploration uh, with you know maybe they've you know gone very far with pickup they've slept with all these women they've had all these adventures but you you but they're still at one there's I mean there's a couple things you see in these guys or I see in these guys uh, that I'm critical of one is that no matter how many experiences they've had with women they still feel um, at its mercy like you see some like these uh, pickup guys I you know I, I tease them on, on this like they may have slept with hundreds of women but as soon as a woman walks into the room they kind of like like oh they, they kind of like they change their their behavior like it's like they have to they have to go into like striving mode this is level of effort as opposed to this level of ease which comes when you actually see yourself as a peer to women or the feminine you no longer get like flustered just because there's someone who may like you don't you don't see women as this monopoly of your well-being anymore they don't you don't see as uh, sex or nurturing as this thing that has to come because someone in a mother complex is still seeing the feminine as as their mother rather as their peer or lover. Um, anyway, I went on a little rant there. Do you have anything else on that rant? Um, oh yeah, it, taking being able to take responsibility for things beyond yourself. Uh, because uh, the other feature of guys stuck in the mother complex they see a lot in the dating coaching world is that they're still very hung up on their individual problems. You know, I think this is. Uh, you could call it a spiritual thing. You know, if you are, I think it's important at some point to be selfish. And, and all of this stuff that we're talking about, this stage of the hero's journey, is the birth of ego. It's not the end of the hero's journey. It's just the beginning. It's where you separate from the Uruburos, you separate from the status quo, and you start to go through your own unconscious or go through the world through a transformational journey to find out who you really are. Um, and that's important to be selfish in the beginning. Thanks, Tim, for the, for the comment. Um, uh, Tim said, cool point. Uh, it's a okay, sorry. It's the beginning of the it's the beginning of the hero's journey. It's where you separate and define your own self, and it's really important in the beginning uh, to have a selfish motivation. It's totally fine to have a selfish motivation. In fact, most of us are called to adventure, whether it's a personal call to adventure, an internal call to adventure, or something you go out and do in the world. Very often, it's for some selfish motivation. You start the business because you need money, um, or you start the business because you want to free yourself from your boring corporate job. You go after the woman because you want to be with the woman for selfish reasons. You think she's attractive. You want to have sex with her. You want to love her. You want to date her. Selfish motivation, it's fine. Um, whatever the thing is, right? Uh, Frodo goes in, uh, leaves the Shire to, to go to Mordor, not because he really cares about the responsibility of the ring, but he just wants to have an adventure. That's totally fine. 
But at some point, when you get past the, the oral biosurvival circuit, when you actually leave the, the protection of the mother within your psyche, uh, you have to get to the point where now other people's problems matter more. In a typical hero's journey, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, pick your, pick your, your, uh, your obvious uh, hero's journey story. Um, at some point, the hero stops caring about himself. He's like, Luke Skywalker doesn't just care about his own mastery of the Force. He's like, oh shit, I need to use this to save the galaxy, or I need to use this to save the Shire, or whatever. Um, and that, that, that's actually for the next stage where we'll talk about the father complex. Um, but that's important, right? If you're still, you know, if you're, I think if you're a grown man and you're only thinking about your own selfish problems, uh, it's not wrong because everyone has a different stage of their development. Just know that there's something bigger and better at the next stage, which in my opinion is dealing with the problems of other people. And, and that's actually where it gets more fun because if I go back to, sorry, I'm, I'm speaking quickly because I'm excited. Um, if I go back to uh, my book, stage three is where I was being very selfish and just like, yes, give me spiritual advice, give me sexual experiences, give me nurturing. At a certain point, I noticed in myself, I was getting antsy because I was getting what we call diminishing returns on pleasure. So the birth of the Son of Swords archetype uh, was my birth of ego of like, oh, I need to deal with something bigger than myself. And that's when I started a men's group. And that's, you know, um, I don't think it's necessarily a, a, a split between selfishness and altruism. Like when I started that men's group, I was doing it because it felt good to me, right? Like things are on point and things are correct within your hero's journey or resonant with your hero's journey when the thing that feels good to you also happens to benefit other people. Like you're not doing it uh, because you want to be seen as moral or good or just. You're doing it because it actually just feels good to serve people, which I think is natural when you have fixed your own inadequacies or gotten out of your own perceptions of scarcity. It's like, well, what do I do with all of this stuff? What do I do with this extra money that I don't need it, uh, necessarily? What do I do with this extra love or extra awareness or emotional security that I don't n need for myself? Well, I, I, can, I can somehow help other people um, or you know, take on a cause of some sort. Okay, so we're going to close this out now with... Uh, uh, oh, and I did want to mention all right, one last thing before we close it out. Uh, I didn't actually talk about the Son of Swords archetype. I'm squeezing this in because I forgot to. Um, throughout my book, uh, a lot of it is me confronting my inner feminine, confronting uh, my experiences with women, but also like some of the mystical stuff, which I'd also ca call the feminine side of healing. Throughout the book, I'm, uh, I go in as a hyper-rational guy, right? I was like super in my head, uh, super judgmental of anything of many things that are mystical, I shouldn't say anything, um, but uh, coincidentally or synchronistically or just very perfectly, um, throughout the story of my cult experience, it's a true story, but I, I did connect with a real woman who was very much a Manic Pixie dream girl to me. Like she, was, she had more depth to her than just the Manic Pixie side of her, but in the way she related to me, she really showed that Manic Pixie archetype where like she did all these irrational things that would fluster me but also challenge me to grow. One of those things was that she was constantly referring to astrology. So in the, in the first couple chapters of the book, I'm constantly rolling my eyes at her when she pulls out the fool archetype or pulls out this, pulls out this archetype and says, well, this is exactly what's going on because this card came out. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. I kind of synchronistically, uh, throughout the chapter, she pull, she'll pull a card that in some way relates. And I am, you know, I'm using some uh, literary, uh, uh, what's it called? Um, poetic license there, but actually during this period where I was confronting the great mother within my cult and conf confronting the terrible mother and trying to not get emotionally castrated, um, uh, she pulled a card for me that was within this um, 
deck. Uh, it's called the Son of Swords. Um, There's a specific uh, tarot card deck, which I only learned later. It's, uh, it's, it's round cards instead of square cards. It's a very uh, feminine-centric uh, deck, which was kind of perfect. That was in the matriarchy. Um, and all the cards are related to the feminine experience as opposed to the male, the, the masculine hero's journey. Um, and so the card that I pulled was one of the few male characters within the, in the in the entire deck. Almost all the cards, it has many of the, the, the typical cards you have in all decks, like the Fool Archetype, the Magician, whatever. Um, they had uh, very few cards that were actually boys. A lot of the, like the Magician was a female, the Fool was a female, all of that stuff. Um, but one of the cards that was male was the Son of Swords. And look, you see like this Viking, uh, this like gladiator guy, he's got a sword, he looks really badass. And she pulled the card and I was like, oh cool, like that seems like a badass card. I don't know what it means, but it looks cool. And she's like, no, this is a terrible card. This is a card of like, and she showed me like what the book said about it. It's like um, the overcompensation of male rationality in response to the mother. I kind of like just shrugged at it, but I look back now at like when I when she pulled this card for me and the experiences I had confronting uh, the tyrannical mother within my cult, um, and it was like it's just oddly perfect. Like so, the Son of Swords is a, is a developmental stage in my opinion that isn't pleasant. I think it's what most of us should go through when we're 13, 14, and many of us do, but I think a lot of us don't complete that cycle where we still feel rebellious. It's like the rebellion of the masculine ego of like, hey, we don't necessarily need to be under mother's wing anymore, and then like, you know, they 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 become an arrogant teenager, which is what is typical of teenagers, but I, and I, I would call out certainly the MGTOW communities and much of the red pill community where they're basically acting like a 14 year old kid who's like no girls allowed we don't need girls like they're 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 oppressive girls are mean and that's basically the underlying assumption of a lot of their advice or a lot of um, underlying uh, vibe of a lot of their of advice and um, it's not necessarily although I do think it's a developmental stage where the male psyche develops his individuality comes up against challenges or like you know the um, universal shit tests of the female aspect of the psyche doesn't get castrated and becomes the hero of his own journey. But it's not where you stop because you do want to reintegrate your ego and not just be a head on a stick who's trying to control nature and oppress women necessarily. Or yeah, you probably don't want that. It's just not fun. Um, okay. So bringing this in to... Oh, and, and all right. Just to end the, the cult side of the story, uh, that's the third layer. Um, what happened was I ran the men's group by standing up to my terrible mother archetype who was trying to oppress me and say, you're not good enough, you can't. I started it anyway. I just did what, I mean, it was kind of like one of these covert tests where I just did what I wanted. And through that, through, through, not, um, through not folding to her challenge, um, she started to, to respect me. And from there, she, they actually, because of that, in many ways, they moved me into a leadership position and I rose in the ranks very quickly. And basically my cult mentor, who was uh, trying to oppress me and oppressed a lot of men as the terrible mother went on to uh, become my good mother. And, you know, call her my cult mom. She, she, she's based, she's a real person in real life and she's done many negative things, many things that very much embody the dark feminine, manipulation, um, all sorts of like things that she's done to people that have been bad. At the same time, she, uh, she was also hands down. I mean, if she happens to listen to this, I, I want you to, to hear this. Uh, hands down the greatest teacher I've ever had. Through interacting with her and despite interacting with her, I learned some of the most profound lessons of my life and access parts of myself that I don't know how I would have accessed otherwise. Like things that I'm very grateful in myself of what I would call virtuous aspects of my personality or things that I really like came from interacting with her. 
So even though she did a lot of, even though she tried to emotionally castrate me and maybe emotionally blind me at certain times, actually throughout the story, she does a lot of uh, underhanded things to me, but even worse things to other people. She definitely represents the dark feminine. I learned so much, and I, I'm saying this all because as we bring this on to the practical application of what to do about your own mother archetype, uh, it, the growth here doesn't come from shaming or attacking the dark feminine. Uh, it comes from confronting it, taking the, the, the ultimate shit test from them, and making sure you, you stand in your potency so you don't get castrated, and maintain your vision so you don't get emotionally blinded, which is what we see a lot in, uh, in guys. So to uh, practical things what to actually do with it a client was like okay this is great i understand i have a mother complex what do i actually do with all this i gave him a couple suggestions and i offer you these suggestions one being if you look at it from a hero's journey perspective you have to separate for your, from your environment when the ego was born in uh in humanity in, in human development uh part of it part of that separation from nature which we may see as the leaving of the garden of eden the fall from grace um was entering the void on their own I mean, uh, the, the, the Genesis in the Bible is like a very patriarchal view of it, like uh, we leave God. But if you look at uh, pre-Christian or pre-Judaism mythologies, there's similar types of things where the human falls from grace uh, and leaves the Ouroboros or the protection of Mother Nature. Sorry, there's boats in the background, I don't know if you hear them. Um, but that's part of the hero's journey of being willing to leave the safety of the Shire and enter the void because entering the unknown is part of confronting the feminine, whether it's light or dark. It's, um, it, it's, it's trusting in yourself as a solitary hero, as a, a sovereign consciousness, as an ego, to be like, okay, I can confront with, uh, I can confront the unknown and uncontrollable things that I'm going to experience out in the great unknown, which um, in films, again, means leaving the Shire, leaving Tatooine, going on the adventures. But internally, and the reason why we're drawn to these stories is that uh, it's, confronting uh, the things that are hidden in our unconscious to, cause to bring this like to example of like the guy, the kid, the, the young man or any man who wants to explore the world for instance or start his own business and leave corporate but his, his friends, his status quo um, all shame him. They all say like, oh, you're stupid. Like, oh, we're going to start another business, be like an Instagram whore. Like, what, what's like, you know, and they, they all challenge him. The whole crab's in a barrel trying to, trying to drag him down. Um, if he succumbs to that, that's the same emotional castration basically. He's like giving up his balls to stay another crab in the barrel as opposed to, to having the balls of like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to, I don't care if everyone's shaming me. I don't think, I don't care if my friends think this is crazy. I don't care if my parents think this is crazy. I'm okay with disappointing my parents, which is the uh, metaphor of slaying the mother. I don't care if they, if they think less of me or talk shit about me. I'm going to go out and face the great unknown on my own and see what happens and see what I'm made of, right? So literally, if you have a mother complex and you find yourself always following the status quo of whatever your parents tell you or whatever your, your conventional tribe or the people you hang out with uh, tell you to do as opposed to following your heart, an obvious thing is to go out and follow your heart. I know in the time of coronavirus, it's kind of hard to travel the world or do those things, but you can start a business right now, or maybe you can, you know, maybe it's quitting your job. I know that's a cliche thing, but it's a very common thing for most people. Most people who have oppressive jobs want to quit their job, and they just don't have the balls to do it. This is your internal shit test from your own inner feminine. Do you have the balls to do the thing that is scary and unknown? Um, <clears throat> second thing, or one thing, uh, Oh, the other thing is related to material accomplishment. This is the, I'm giving you three uh, suggestions. First is to separate from your environment, especially if you think your peers or your environment 
parental or friend is dragging you down. It's an obvious thing. That's literally a start of a call to adventure or crossing the threshold. The second thing I suggest um, is very low-hanging fruit uh, is to do some sort of strength training. This is for men specifically, I think most people, but as we speak about in the Masculine Archetype Challenge, there are three uh, pillars of uh, uncovering the Masculine Archetype within yourself. Introspection, which we are doing throughout which we're doing, if you're watching this, I assume you're introspective. Um, there's being grounded, which is being willing to take on the unknown. We, we spoke about that. Um, the third thing is material accomplishment. The testosterone, the, um, the androgen receptors in your brain, the, part, the, the receptors in your brain that register testosterone and like, uh, are affected by testosterone um, respond to ac accomplishing challenges. There's something called the winner effect, which I've talked about a lot, but if you haven't heard, I'm gonna briefly explain it again. Anytime you perceive that you have won a challenge, your testosterone levels spike and your dopamine levels spike in your bloodstream, but also your, your nervous system develops more receptors for testosterone and dopamine. This is a huge thing. You're literally changing your chemistry by taking on challenges and winning. There's also something called the loser effect where if you take on a challenge and fail, it actually reduces your receptors. And you can see why this happens, right? Like, um, sorry, I'm losing my papers, one second. Uh, testosterone and dopamine. Um, if you win something, it feels good to have that testosterone and dopamine surge. So obviously your brain is going to create more receptors so you can have a greater boost of pleasure and well-being from doing that. Whereas if you lose something, if you fail a challenge, your body doesn't want you to feel that depression, so it'll reduce the number of receptors. And like you'll see this in people who um, grow up kind of effeminate and they don't have that competitive edge. You can maybe make an educated guess that they actually literally in their bodies have less androgen receptors in their nervous system. That's why they don't care about winning and losing. Not to say that you should overly care, um, because you can see on the other extreme, someone who's way too competitive probably has way too many uh, androgen receptors, because obviously that, you know, it's um, testosterone-driven impulses are not um, always good. They're not absolutely good. In fact, um, most of my knowledge about testosterone comes from the book The Virility Paradox. Uh, you can check out my podcast with the author Charles Ryan. I think it's episode 32 or something like that. And his whole book is called The Virility Paradox because uh, testosterone uh, and virility is a paradox. It's not all good. There's many negatives from having too much testosterone, but you can listen to his book or read his book if you want to know about that. But back to the second suggestion I have, strength training, like heavy resistance training, is one of the lowest hanging fruits to one, give your sense of, uh, of material accomplishment and increase your testosterone and androgen receptors, which uh, I don't think it gets spoken about enough for men uh, it's a huge part of well-being, and like you know, all of this introspective stuff, uh, all of this introspective stuff is very good and important. Um, and you know, feeling your feelings, and all that's important. But if you are feeling crappy, if you are prone to depression, if you're kind of lost, and you're not exercising, you're just missing out on one of the easiest ways to improve your mood and well-being and sense of everything. Like any time I've been lost in my life and didn't know what to do, I just like picked a uh, fitness goal. I became obsessive about it, and through that, my creative inspiration woke up again. And it could have been because I was developing those, redeveloping those androgen receptors and feeling uh, virile and vital in my body, um, or it could be a little more abstract than that. It doesn't matter. Strength training, because like when you do things, when you when you do like I've, I've gotten really into kettlebells. Actually, this week I'm speaking to Brett Jones, the the, the head instructor of Strong First, which is Pavel Sasulin's um, company, who um, he'll be on the podcast soon. So if you listen to the podcast, if you're not subscribed, you want to learn some fitness tips, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and um, you can hear them from him because I'm not quite a fitness expert myself. But 
anytime you're doing heavy resistance training and developing your body in that way or doing martial arts and developing your body in that way for being able to fight, not to say that that's the point of it, um, it's really hard to see yourself as a child and a lot of those boyhood or uh, son-like impulses will probably reduce. Not to say that there aren't meatheads with mother complexes, but it's low-hanging fruit. And the final, uh, the final suggestion, the final practical tip I would give to someone who wants to confront or uh, overcome what might be a mother complex or residue or mother complex-like behaviors is to find a way to engage with the feminine as a peer. And if uh, you have any sort of mother complex behaviors with your literal mom um, or a m maternal figure in your life, maybe a female boss or uh, could even be an older sister or maybe, unfortunately, I think a lot of guys have mother complex relationships with their wives or girlfriends, which uh, is unfortunate. Um, to re-engage with the feminine or like whatever whatever person it really represents the maternal archetype in you, re-engage with um, that person as a peer. This is actually a suggestion I got from my girlfriend um, because, you know, despite, you know, a lot of my steps forward with like shifting my relationship and fears with the feminine within myself and externally, um, my mom was very, my mom's a great person, very enmeshing, uh, very neurotic, um, and even, you know, even up until like recently, uh, I noticed she would still look at me or talk to me like I'm a little kid, even though I'm 32 now. Um, and I got a suggestion from my girlfriend, which is to take my mom out for lunch. It seems like a simple gesture, but it's really hard for someone to see you as a child when you're buying them lunch. This is kind of like the archetypal switch you can do with a lot of people. And anytime you see yourself relating to someone and you're both expressing archetypes in a way that you don't like, like child parent or bully, uh, bullied or something like that, uh, one way to shift that is to do something that, it, do an action that is not resonant with um, that kind of archetypal connection. So my, I, I bought my mom lunch and it was actually a very profound thing where something shifted in my mom and she started to speak to me as if I was a peer because I was buying her lunch. Like she can't look at me as a boy if that's the case. So it might seem quite simple, but a lot of these mundane actions, uh, I can have profound effects in how you relate to those parts of yourselves. I mean, if you look at the myths, like we don't, we're not taking the myths uh, literally, but they all represent things that can like very often have uh, profound, um, or they can map to profound things in our consciousness. So this was, was an abstract, uh, or it, it was a very deep um, topic. Um, I hope I didn't speak too fast. I get excited when we're talking about stuff like this and you know speaking on three levels so uh, we're talking about yeah this was the mother complex and uh, flushing that out um, I don't know if it's gonna be next week or in two weeks I'm gonna do one on the father complex so like we've, we've covered leaving the oral bio survival circuit and shifting over to um, becoming a sovereign ego but that's not the end of the hero's journey the next level is to confront the father uh, and this is seen in slaying the primary father and seeking the secondary father which is your mentor uh, which we see in, in Obi-Wan and Yoda and Gandalf, uh, which is, the, I would say, the next level of the hero's journey when it comes to the masculine psyche. Um, so we'll do that probably in one or two weeks. Uh, if it's not next week, um, next week we're going to talk about um, a book that was recommended to me by my buddy Maris uh, called The Man Who Taps the Secrets of the Universe. It's, it's, kind of a, it's, not, it's more than a mindset book. There was actually a really interesting idea um, called The Life Triumphant, which they throw in that book. And I think it's something that is not only an interesting for a developmental perspective, but given that many of us are quarantined, 
um, or on lockdown or not able to do a lot of things and like there's not a lot to do other than uh, you know obviously waste your time on the internet or sit and be introspective is something that I think uh, I just I just I just read this book last week, so it's kind of a new idea to me. But I think it's a very interesting perspective on what to do with your time, especially in this time of the coronavirus. Um, so that's that. Um, if you want to know more about what's going on for me, you can check out the the uh, Love in the Time of Coronavirus series that my girlfriend and I are doing. Um, it's uh, you can look her up at Brittany Bond, uh, or you can subscribe to her on YouTube. Uh, this remote collective on YouTube, there should be a playlist called Love in the Time of Coronavirus. You will see my face in it because it's us talking about um, our unusual relationship situation in these unusual times. And yes, it's a reference to Gabriel Garcia Marquez's Love in the Time of Cholera. Uh, final announcements at the Archetype class. Uh, I've reinstated the free coaching session that comes with the Archetype class. Um, obviously, I'm plugging myself, but I also think it's, this is a great time to be introspective. And if you wanted to do these courses, uh, my other course is also available at a discount if you join the Archetype class. Uh, if you wanted to do these courses, if you want to develop these parts of yourselves, but because of work, because of all the things you had to do, you just didn't have the time, now is a great time. I mean, I'm signing up for Masterclass. It's like a, yeah, it's a great time to, to read all the books you wanted to read and study all the things you wanted to study because... What else is there to do, right? So you can uh, access that at rwando.com slash archetype. I'm offering the free coaching session to everyone who signs up right now um, because I want to be there for you because uh, this is a great time to develop this stuff. And if you happen to have uh, mother complex or notice you have mother complex behaviors, um, the best way, I would love to work it out with you. Sign up for the archetype class and we'll schedule a one-on-one -on -one call and we can dig into this stuff because uh, even more than talking about this mythology and the hero's journey and talking about my own experiences, even more than that that I enjoy is working on the hero's journey sections with other people I, 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 I love. It's my, my favorite thing in the whole world is to work out someone's life story with them and basically witness the, someone's life story and help someone move to the next chapter because it's just entertaining. Forget about everything else. It's just really fun. Um, you know, some people watch Marvel movies. I watch people's real lives. It's a personal choice. Um, so that's at ruando.com slash archetype. You could sign up for that. And um, I, I would love to have a conversation with you while we're all on lockdown. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, feel free to drop them. I will catch them eventually. And next week, tune in to the next episode. Uh,